RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 2, Episode 10. Gene Roddenberry Letter to Sue LaForge, December 15th, 1987. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Hey, welcome back, Star Trek background fans. You canonistas, and of course you Trekophiles spelled with an F. Uh, a very sweet piece of correspondence this week uh, between Gene Roddenberry and a fan, or more particularly, the mother of a fan. Uh, who has one of the, the sweet little untold stories behind the next generation, actually all of Star Trek. And it's a great encapsulation of the mutual love affair since almost day one between the Star Trek makers and the Star Trek uh, greater fandom out there. Just just take a listen to this piece of uh, one of our pieces of correspondence this week that you can find on Facebook at The Trek Files. And I'll be right back with our guest this week. Dear Mrs. LaForge, it was so good to receive your letter with all the fine sentiments it contained. We here at Star Trek feel honored ourselves to have known your son, Georgie. Our affection for him was genuine. We're very pleased now to hear that you approve of our remembering him through Geordie LaForge of Star Trek The Next Generation. Yes, Gene was writing to Mrs. LaForge, which is <laughs> which is a little bit of a, of, a, of a gobsmacker until you remember that the character of Geordie LaForge was actually named for a real-life uh, real person, a rarity in Star Trek, but not, uh, not completely unknown, as uh, I'm looking forward to talking about with uh, our old friend and guest this week again, John Champion, you all know from Mission Log, Mission Log Live. Hi, John. Hello, Larry. Very glad to be here on this one. This is so... It's so nice. <laughs> it, you know, it, it really is. Like This is the cool thing about doing the Trek Files, is that... I'd heard this story since the beginning of Next Generation about Geordie LaForge being named after a real person. And you're going to tell us a little bit about that person in a minute. But it's a very different thing to hear that story passed around a hundred times, a thousand mm-hmm. times, a million times. It's very different to do that and then actually see the document, see the letters between the people that it affected. This is a private letter. Uh, first from Sue LaForge to Jean, handwritten, that people mm-hmm. can go look at, and then a letter from Jean to Sue LaForge. That's how this happens. That That's how this comes about. And then, then the story gets told, and you, you read about it in Starlog, and you hear about it at a convention, but this is the moment that this thing happened. We actually get to see it and touch it in real life. Um, so I, I think this one is, is particularly special. It is, yeah, I think the word "sweet" just uh, just kind of sums it up. Now, I you know I I had no clue. Now this is this is a story out of Michigan fandom for one thing. Uh, the LaForges lived up I guess around um, Detroit, Greater Michigan, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't know him personally. I didn't know the story until all the publicity came out for Next Generation, and I may have heard it vaguely. I specifically remember working on the Companion the first time in '92 and. Specifically, hearing oh, Jordy LaForge was named for a fan named uh, a handicapped fan named George LaForge, and I thought, well, that's sweet, that's different. Uh, he wasn't blind; he was paraplegic. 
But um, and we've all known people who are disabled in some way who are huge Star Trek fans. And fa- you go to any of the major conventions and small ones, fandom always makes room for everyone. That's part of mm-hmm. inclusivity. Mm-hmm. And uh, people are especially, um, you know, a, a fond of everyone and make room for everyone in the Star Trek tent. But the fact that this was, um, I didn't realize that he died so soon. I was doing a little background here. Um, he died in 1975. So when you think about, you know, the first New York convention was in 72. He died. He passed away in 75. Um, zine culture was just barely going a little bit before the conventions. And, and there was a hotbed of zine culture in Michigan. But uh, the impact he must have had on Gene and on David Gerald, who was in that early pool. And, yeah. and David Gerald was responsible for, I think, some of the impetus behind naming Jordy after this real life fan uh yeah and the fact that they that uh, i think the impetus for having a having a blind and having the irony of him being blind but being able to see better than the humans around him Mm -hmm. his crewmates part of the irony of geordie at least in the the beginning there was part of the thrust of the character uh and and then being paired up with the human you know walking computer data that was supposed (laughs) to be kind of a you know a yin and yang uh tandem there but to think of the impact that the real-life George LaForge must have made on all the original cast and crew at those early, earliest of conventions. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just kind of amazing. Um, uh, and then her, and then, but having her, like you said, having her hand here in this uh, well, this letter. You know, there's a couple of pieces in here that uh, they, we didn't put in the reading that I, I think really speak to her and speak to Georgie. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, it's an honor we would like to accept for him with the humility he so genuinely possessed, uh, which I think is such a kind thing for her to say. It was always a dream of his to be a part of the space program in some way. Never in his wildest dreams could he have hoped to be a part of the Star Trek crew to represent the handicapped. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just such a gracious uh, uh, correspondence between her and Jean. And what a way to be remembered. You know, um, Star Trek The Next Generation clearly has has lived well beyond, you know, the the, we just had the 30th anniversary last year. um, And it is still so, so clearly a high watermark for Star Trek in general um, that anybody who is to this day even just sort of a casual fan has probably heard this story and has probably read about it. And, And I love being able to put even more humanity on that through these letters. You know, I was just thinking about, um, uh, obviously, I, I never met uh, Georgie LaForge or Sue LaForge. I never met Jean. But I, I, I think about how a few years ago at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention, uh, Captain Dave. Captain Dave mm-hmm. was somebody who was wheelchair-bound. Uh, he, he had some extreme difficulties, some uh, extreme physical limitations. He was a fixture at that show, right. though. He was always there every year, day in costume. Uh, wheeling around the vendor floor and in the main room and and such a presence. And it was so tragic that he had passed away one year in between conventions, and uh, they very kindly named the the vendor hall after him (laughs) uh, that next year. I thought that was super cool, Um, something that I didn't expect. And then you walk in and you see that and uh, and remember, you know, seeing him around and and how, how he will be missed. Right. Well, it, so it was very apt that, that they, when they conceived of the character of Jordy, that uh, and, and the role they wanted that character to have in the next Jinker, because 
it's almost hitting the point now, and even the kids, the kids, the kids who were fans <laughs> of Next Gen who are now in their 40s and 50s, right, right. but that was their Star Trek, not the original series. Yeah. The people that came up with The Next Generation um, and the fondness they have for the show, but it's, it's, it's a little hard for them to have the, even the clearance that the original series fans do of how much The Next Gen came to life with everyone, the creators especially, wanting to have a fresh start Mm-hmm. Prove that it would stand on its own. And also, not just fix, I'm air quoting here, fix the mistakes of the original series when there were some, and the conceptual maybe miscalculations, but also look around the world, the, the, the fresh, sparkling world of 1987, <laughs> and, and see you know, how much progress had been made since the 60s, yeah. and think about, and, and have the hindsight of the impact of Star Trek, and think about things like, they never. No one would have ever had a character that was like a Geordi in the sixties. Yeah, um, you know, maybe into the seventies. But but just stopping to think what the opportunity of this new, you know, all fresh uh, Star Trek in an all fresh new era uh, was going to present well, the opportunities that you had to do with casting and characters and concept and all of yeah. that. And this was the kind of thing that that you would. Well, be able to do well. They knew they had something with the diversity of the original cast. That, that that was something that fans responded to. That was something that made Star Trek what it was. So how do we do that again twenty years later, mm-hmm. and and continue to push that? Continue to push that envelope. So from the very beginning of the uh, the the early character development, they knew that there was going to be somebody who had some disability. Something, whatever that was going to be. How, how do we work around that? Even in DS Nine, the concept was there. How, how do we have somebody, uh, maybe the science officer this time around, who has some disability mm-hmm. that that actually gives him an advantage in the end? You know, and with Jordy, they they obviously played that out beautifully, and that became a, a hallmark character. Right. Well, and it's the same kind of. You know, it's a combination of taking a gap when you've had to endure <laughs> a fallow time for Star Trek as far as the series goes, as the next generation ended that time uh, for the first time, and then, say, Discovery coming back. Mm-hmm. And you have that freshness of take that you want to do to, to make it fresh. It's beloved as anything that's gone before is and will be part of people's you know, emotional enjoyment, sentiment, uh, mm-hmm. love affair, passion. Because they grew up with it or it came to them at a time in their life. You can't separate that for people, but the chance to do something fresh and new is there and watching the kinds of things that Discovery was trying to do for its time with some of the uh, issues and the, and the, the social issues and, and landscape of today. You know, just as a purely, and I hate to say trivial matter, <laughs> but even so, naming Star Trek naming characters after real-life people is still a pretty rare occurrence. It's happened. I, yeah. I don't think we can say in the original series not – Next generation, we have Geordi here for George LaForge. I mean, Picard was kind of a loose naming of the twin Picard with two C French brothers who were balloonists, right. and one of them developed a, a bathysphere. Right. I, I think within however many decades, you know, one had made it to the lowest depth, had, had a record right. for descending to the lowest depth, and another had a record for ascending to the highest altitude. And both of those records were a time were held by Picard. <laughs> well, Picard is cool. You know, Augusta yeah. and Jean. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, really, it's, it's kind of... Now, if, and then, of course, there's the two characters named for Gene himself. Mm-hmm. We have Wesley right. Crusher for Eugene Wesley Roddenberry. Right. And then we have Thomas Eugene Paris nice. on Voyager. Nice. 
But other than that, I think really naming for a, a person um, is pretty rare. Again, Discovery, we famously now have Paul Stamets' name for the actual right. mycologist, Paul Stamets. Yeah. As, as, as on the nose as you can get. <laughs> right, <laughs> they, right. They even change it to, you know, like Fred Stamets or <laughs> yeah. something else. No, or Paula Stamets. Paula, it, ooh, yeah. oh, okay. Uh, uh, made it a woman, woman or something. Because okay. they, 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 they made George to Geordie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know a few people in the beginning were like, Jordy, what kind of a name is that? Although now we, it's, it's completely. So, yeah, yeah. so it's a singular honor. It's, even over the different eras of Star Trek and the different showrunners and creators and people who had the keys to be able to make those decisions. Because there's a little bit of a legal, you know, research will tell you when you're right. When you're uh, they, they were for a few minutes going to use Elizabeth Janeway for Captain Janeway until they realized that the wife of Elliot Janeway, the economist, who was also famous in her own right, was named Elizabeth. So they shied away oh. and went back around to Catherine, and then later on found out that she was would have been delighted to have had oh. I would sign anything away to let you name a, the first female lead captain in Star Trek after Well, me. I'm still waiting for Captain John Champion to show up uh, <laughs> somewhere. Mirror Universe, Prime Universe, I don't care, whichever. whichever. And, what a, and what a natural <laughs> name that would be. Right. I'm, I'm not that demanding, you know. Just, <laughs> just spell it right. Yeah, yeah but, but bring it back to seeing these handwritten notes. And notice this, too. Mm-hmm. She wrote her note uh, November 21st thanking him for this. Yeah, so the show had already been on. For a little while. She had no clue. She didn't, really. They did not. I mean, uh, there you go. She's writing to thank them. They didn't reach out to her and say, oh, you know, either there was no work. Well, he had died in 75. Right, right. So I don't think there was a worry about legalities. And I think they had the tone of the relationship to where they knew that it would be a wonderful surprise. Yeah. And not a shock. Yeah. You know, the kind of thing that you would want to. uh, Yeah. The same, the same way that uh, Farouk El Baz was surprised by Rick Berman when they named the first shuttlecraft oh, the, on the show the El Baz, yeah, and yeah. I remember reading the the uh, correspondence when he was watching yeah. the show with his kids yeah. and went, "Oh, look, Dad, they've named a shuttle pod after you." <laughs> had no idea. So that's that's another another again another sweet angle of the story. She hadn't a clue. They didn't warn her ahead of time. She watched yeah. it uh, unfold. And that was not a shuttlepod name. That was the name of a regular, <laughs> an entire regular character. There. And, so. and, and just to wrap it up, uh, to make it even nicer, there's a bit of fan love being shown to uh, to LeVar Burton, both in mm-hmm. Sue's letter and in Gene's reply. They they both effuse about how how wonderful and how sort of kind and friendly in embodying this, the, again, this sweetness of character uh, and how much they both like LeVar. Only, uh, yeah, still in the midst of reading Rainbow and only yeah, what, yeah. Uh, eight years or so out of roots. Uh, out of roots, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, excellent document, Larry. Good find. Glad we this got was to a, this uh, was talk a, about this one today. This was a lovely one. Yeah, John, and thanks once again Absolutely, for my joining pleasure. us. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All documents are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. For more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at larrynemichek.com. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.